Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, my name is Randy Milch, and I'm the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as a guest today Bill Ide, one of the great leaders of the American Bar. Bill is currently a partner at the global law firm Denton's, and he has served as general counsel of Monsanto, but these are only two entries in a distinguished resume. He clerked for a future United States Attorney General, served as the president of the American Bar Association, was counsel to the U.S. Olympic Committee, and has been and remains a director on a number of public company boards. He's also become a leading voice in corporate governance questions, a very important topic today. Bill, welcome to In-House Legal. Oh, thank you, Randy. Glad to be here. It's a real pleasure to have you and you taking time from your busy schedule to be with me. Bill, let's dive right in. Give us a flavor of uh, one of the first big decisions you had to make here. And it was interesting, I read your your bio, you were a UVA law graduate, and you were debating whether to go into big law at the time, although it wasn't quite as big as today, or to go clerk for a federal judge. What kind of decision was that for you, and how did you make that decision? What I found, Randy, and I've constantly sort of moved uh, from one place to the other, uh, and it's usually been from the gut. And uh, when I was honored to get an offer from a a leading New York law firm after I clerked for the second year, and yet, um, my gut said that if I, my best friend was number one in our class, and a smart guy, and he said, I'm going to go down and clerk for Judge Albert Tuttle in the Fifth Circuit, uh, I just think that experience would round me out more before I started to practice. I thought, boy, that makes sense. And the Fifth Circuit was now called the 11th, was the Southeast, and there was a lot going on in the civil rights era there. So just something in me said, uh, you know, this is something to do, uh, you should do. And I went down and I interviewed with Judge Bell, and it was he's quite a captivating personality. And so I, I made that leap, and it turned out uh, it sort of transformed uh, where I, I would have been on the Wall Street lawyer doing commuting from Long Island, perhaps. And I ended up uh, for a career in Atlanta. I'm, I'm glad I did. Tell us a little bit about the uh, era there with the, the era of great public litigation over the integration questions and the segregation questions in the South. What kind of an atmosphere was it to clerk on the Fifth Circuit at the time, given all the social tumult that was around the decisions those judges were making? Well, I was raised in a segregated society, segregated uh, schools, segregated water fountains, and uh, never challenged it. Uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you that today, but that was the the way the South was. And I went to a small school, Washington Lee University, and we had this group that wanted to invite Dr. King to come, and Washington Lee turned him down. They said he was too radical. So that's the world I came from. And when I went down and uh, clerked, my eyes were just uh, open. Like, I, I just could not believe the courage and the zest of the civil rights lawyers from the South, and frankly, a lot that came down, 
and and all of a sudden the injustice uh, once they started educating uh, uh, Brown versus Board of Education had happened uh, long before, but it was it was not until Dr. King did Selma March and Police Chief Bull Connor uh, unleashed the dogs on public television to uh, civil rights workers that all of a sudden everyone started seeing the injustice and it was magnificent how lawyers and judges transformed the social fabric of the South and. I um, changed my life to be uh, be sitting with not you know, sitting in the courtroom watching all that happen. And quite frankly, the majority of the Southerners who had been looking the other way were were reached by that leadership. And and we we had a few instances of violence, but very little. And quite honestly, I think the South moved back past some places in the North uh, when you when you look at the Watts riots and things that happened later on. It is interesting to note, of course, that the the judge you worked for and the other judges, they were hardly outsiders to the status quo. They were some of the the top people uh, socially and intellectually of their era, and they seemed to move pretty quickly to, to right some of those wrongs. Well, and it was fascinating to watch uh, the legal train of judges. I, there were one or two district court judges that were still utterly resistant, and they uh, ignored Brown versus the Board of Education, which, say, Plessy versus Ferguson is still law. I mean, I heard that. I heard that argument. But, uh, to your point, most of those judges came from the same conditioning I did, and they uh, they believed in the law so much that they wanted to do the right thing, and then I think as they start saw the injustices as the evidence came out, that that moved them, you know, we, we just were all looking the other way, and that court process and the, the litigation open everybody's eyes to what was really going on and what needed to be fixed. It's a fascinating story and a fascinating time. I know it's been written about, but it's also interesting to me. It seems as though, as you mentioned, you could have been a you could have been another commuter lawyer out here in Long Island coming into the city for uh, for big deals, and instead, it seems like this this move to clerk for Judge later Attorney General Bell further, uh, you know, sealed the fate of you being a, a, a lawyer that stuck to the South. What was your next move after leaving the clerkship? And uh, it seems like you stayed put right in Atlanta. Well, I did. There was a, a lot of, uh, later in my career, I commuted from Atlanta to St. Louis and Monsanto and the uh, New York. But the energy from the civil rights movement brought the business community into not only working civil rights, but all of a sudden this this we can have a dream, and Atlanta became a very vibrant, high energy city. So I went with uh, King and Spalding, which today is a huge firm. I was the 34th lawyer at the time, and tried cases for uh, first three or four years. Uh, back then, young lawyers could try cases and argue appellate things. Uh, and uh, then Atlanta, Atlanta wanted was audacious enough to say we're going to have a rapid transit system. Uh, we're going to be like New York and everyone else. And I rolled the dice. Uh, again, this was the guy. I left King Spalding, which was a pretty secure, I could see where it was going, to join a little law firm that represented the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority. It was going to a referendum. And if the referendum passed, I had this huge billion-dollar capital program to work with. If it didn't pass, I was uh, going to be looking for the next job. And so there were 461 votes out of majority out of 110 cast. And then... We had to recount them in the paper ballots, and I recounted every one of them, and we got up to 471. So that then gave me for five years. Uh, when you do build a rapid transit into a city, you 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 just you deal with all the social fabric of the city. So again, it was uh, you know dealing with the community, if you will. So it was a very uh, 
intriguing, exciting time. We built our firm up to 30 and realized we were so dependent on one client that we went to a new strategy and they merged with QTAC Rock out of Omaha. Uh, Bob QTAC was a leader in the American Bar who I met, and we believe in the Motor City concept. This was in the 70s before you had that. And we built QTAC Rock up to 13 offices and 400 and some lawyers, and I was vice chairman of the firm. And so it's just one event led to the other. And I guess the one thing I would, if I were young, do it over again, I'd say, if you see an opportunity, take the risk. I mean, go to your gut, but but don't be uh, status quo oriented because uh, the, there's constant change in the world, and it's the opportunities that that come you have risk to it, but they have opportunity to it also. I think your advice is incredibly well taken, Bill. I've always told folks, just like you did, that finding an opportunity and having the guts to jump at it are the things that lead you to new opportunities, new successes. Staying put is a, it can be a real death knell to having an interesting life. So Kutak was a leader in the American Bar, and at the same time, is he the one who, who brought you into the American Bar Association or, or whetted your interest in that organization? No, um, what happened was uh, when I was at King and Spalding, uh, there were uh, some great mentors, and uh, one was a guy named uh, Kirk McAlpin, who was a fabulous lawyer. And I had gotten active in the Georgia. Back then, when you joined the, the law firms, they encouraged networking and going to bar meetings, and which was very broadening. You know, you you build a good network, but you also heard and saw how other people did things, and I loved it. And we we created a statewide legal aid program, which I'm very proud of when I got first got involved, the Georgia Young Lawyers. And then I started going to American Bar Lawyers because of my King and Spalding mentor and started meeting there. And I just found it uh, so interesting to meet people from other parts of the world, uh, you know, in other parts of the United States with different perspectives. So I, I got hooked and just saw what lawyers collectively could do. And, you know, they were working on legal services for the poor. They were working on access to justice. So that got me. That's, and I met Bob Cutech, a lot of wonderful people I've met through bar work. So I, uh, and as I emailed you, I just think uh, lawyers get a great, one, they have an obligation to do the right thing by working collectively, and two, you do very well uh, because you, you learn a lot, you meet people, you, you build networks. So the American Bar has been great to me, and I'm very fortunate to have been involved with it. Well, this, of course, culminated in your serving as president of the uh, American Bar Association in 93 uh, and 94, what would you say about your term in office? Was it, uh, you know, did it match up to your expectations? Was it more duty than, than pleasure? When you look back on it now, what do you, how do you think about it? Well, I'll mention one thing that when you, you, you talked about decision and change, uh, when I left the first law firm, King and Spalding, I couldn't sleep for three nights before I made the decision. It was just the change was sort of gut-wrenching. The ADA, I got very active, and all of a sudden it became clear that if I wanted to become president, I was going to need to be in a contested race. So I didn't sleep for another three nights, and I almost threw up twice a day. Uh, it was so emotional to me. And again, I just said, I'm going to take the risk. Uh, you know, I may fall flat on my face. So the election process, it was a contested election, and uh, it was a wonderful experience of working with people. And I'm, I've always been big about Tom Sawyer. Let's paint a fence together. So getting elected cause a coalition of people who uh, we we started talking about what I would like to do if I were president. They were supportive. So that's how I sort of got there. A good description of the American Bar is if you're on San Francisco Bay and you saw this huge ship with all these lights, you can say it's magnificent, and then if you got close to it, 
you'd see it's a thousand little boats of lights on pumping into each other. And uh, so it's a slow moving monolithic in some ways, but it was a great experience because the bar, uh, not only the American bars, state bars, local bars, because you work well, they really are our justice system. I mean, if people think government and having office buildings where their judges is the justice system, that's not true. It's the, it's the people that come and the culture that come and the, you know, the lawyers that will be judges. But they have to have someone that's constantly helping shape and form the system all the way from ethics and disciplinary, not only for lawyers, but for judges, but also to developing law and restatement of law. All that's part of uh, the, what the bar does. And, and it, was, it was very exciting and and even back then, and this is over 15 years ago, the globalization aspects were really coming to uh, play, and so many other parts of the world looked to the United States and the American Bar Association, but then to to be helpful in building rule of law. So I was in 12 of the countries, Africa was a big one, trying to work and help spread the rule of law and, and share. We're so fortunate to try and share with others. So I think it that that you think that the uh, American Bar Association still has a large role to play today in a legal business and a legal environment that that seems to be, in some respects, uh, altering for the worse. Uh, you think it still can play a good role in in leading the bar toward greater social justice and, and those sorts of issues. I'm very concerned right now about uh, where we are uh, as a profession. We are the only profession really left standing and self-regulated. The accountants have lost it. The doctors have lost it. And I think lawyers, too many lawyers don't understand that uh, they have this fantastic opportunity as lawyers, but also obligations as lawyers. And it's the latter part we got to work harder on. And I'm worried, particularly about large law firms becoming so commercial focused and you saw that come to play when there was a very uh, strong movement to create multiple disciplinary practices. And if we're on the, round, the rest of the world, accounting firms uh, of acquired law firms. And there was a big effort to try and do that, and it's coming back. And if that were to happen, then I think the bar would become very small. And it would be sort of like the, the barristers in uh, the U.K. But I, th- I think there's a group of fiercely independent lawyers that will always understand that the justice system is dependent upon them. And what, what I say is that we're officers of the court. If we, if we don't protect the judges, if we don't protect the system, then you go around the rest of the world and you'll see what happens. Uh, places, uh, I spent a lot of time in the former Soviet countries, and there the Department of Justice has jurisdiction over the courts, and so it's very, very easy for the government to control. And the John Adams of the world or... Uh, yeah, you know, and the romantic uh, figures with Clarence Darrow, you name it, those are real. That's what makes us different. And, and there are a lot of lawyers out there that would do that. So, yes, the organized bar has a critical role to play. I think there's a deep concern we've got to get a sort of a renaissance going among lawyers to understand individually and collectively uh, they must spend time on uh, the justice system and true bar associations. Is part of that because you certainly you have to do collectively. You can't you can't get done individually. Yeah, there are significant access to justice issues that we face here in this country, and we'll get to those in a minute. But this is normally the time in our show when we hear a word from our sponsors, and this could potentially represent an opportunity for you. In-house legal is seeking sponsorship. If you are interested in participating in our program or would like more information about rates. 
please contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com or go to their website at www.legaltalknetwork.com and click on Advertise. Welcome back to In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Randy Milch, and today we have Bill Ide, partner at Denton's and former general counsel of Monsanto with us. Bill, before we went off, we were talking a little bit about access to justice issues uh, and the ABA. You know, the, the president, the current president of the ABA issued a, a report, and he detailed some of the great divides uh, in access to justice in the United States. Eighty percent of the people who are poor and many others of moderate means do not get civil legal assistance they need. In some states, 95% of the cases in family courts, at least one party is not represented by counsel. And more disturbing, most disturbing perhaps, half of those who apply for legal aid as a result of those items are turned away because legal aid organizations lack the resources. How do you think beyond the established bar and the bar associations, we should make attempts to solve this access to justice issue? Well, ironically, just as we have this demand not being met, we have, a, one would say, an oversupply of lawyers that uh, uh, law graduates are having a much more difficult time finding uh, jobs. And one of the things that's being worked on, which I think is fantastic, is uh, the idea of incubators that help law graduate law students modify their practice because not only is the, the very poor that, that have lack of access, but frankly, it's... Uh, middle-income people also that can't afford. And we can use technology in a much better way than we're, we're doing. So I think we can get at some of this through lawyers. Uh, law schools don't teach how to go out and, and set up a practice. And there are a lot of wonderful people that want to go back to smaller communities and just serve people, you know, which is what really law is all about. It, it's, it's really a calling and a ministry, but they don't have the tools. That's one thing that would be very important, and uh, and I think uh, courts and bar associations are going to need to take a hard look at are there just as we finally came up with paralegals as a way to reduce costs, uh, are there ways to do like legal technicians or some equivalent? Because there's a lot of money going into access right now through the legal zooms and uh, that kind of thing, but the money isn't going through lawyers and the bar associations. So I think there, and the ABA is working very hard to sort of rethink all this, where technology would be a big piece. Well, there's a lot more to come, and Bill, I know that you'll be integrally involved in helping think through these issues. Let's turn for a second, though, to, uh, you know, you had a stint outside of uh, the private practice as a, the general counsel of Monsanto. I take it this is another one of your gut-wrenching uh, decisions that you uh, considered and you made the leap. Give me an idea about, this was a while ago, you, you retired from Monsanto in 2000, went back to private practice, but you stayed very involved with, with general counsel's corporate decision-making. Do you see the role of the general counsel as changing at all between the time you were general counsel at Monsanto at the end of the 90s uh, to today? Well, I do. Honestly, I never thought when I was, I was because of my America Bar uh, exposure, I was called and asked what I consider Monsanto, and it was in St. Louis, and I was in Atlanta, and and, uh, and quite honestly, I went out thinking, well, there's no way I would ever do this, but you know, it'd be nice to meet the people, and maybe I'll have a new client, and uh, 
But then when I met the people in the company, I just thought, wow, this is a world I don't even really know, but it's powerful. And, and of course, Randy, you've been inside. And I thought I could learn so much. And so that's why I went. And I'm a, I'm a big believer, and I saw it with some general counsels then, but I see it with many more now, that a lot of the, the quote, big firm uh, leadership is used to drive a lot of uh, where the profession's going, how it's going to be. I think general counsels are going to drive it much more now. And they have the perspective that's needed, and they have the resources needed, and quite honestly, they are in the leadership positions because big law firms are going to listen to uh, their clients. Uh, and I've seen that growing, and I'm seeing the caliber of people that become general counsels become much more of a, a broader sect than initially uh, in some time past. It was uh, people that sort of came up to the company, but they were more technically oriented in certain areas. And, and you can't do that anymore as a general counsel for a, for a large public company because you're you're dealing with all the stakeholders, and that's really the general counsel's main job. Exactly. I think you're exactly right, Bill, that the people frequently say that the, any, any public corporation has stakeholders that range from the employees to the shareholders to regulators uh, to society at large. You know, there's no, no company has a God-given right to exist. So uh, I agree with you that the general counsel has to be among those principally responsible for ensuring that all of those stakeholders are at least respected as critical decisions come up. I mean, even today, we today is the day that the head of the, the CEO of uh, Volkswagen had to step down because of the apparent problems with their emissions testing. Would have been quite a time to be the general counsel of Volkswagen as you're dealing, dealing with that. And in the future, those sorts of issues uh, with that company and another company are going to be coming up. So it's quite a set of issues to deal with. But let's talk about the general counsel and the board for a second, because I know that you've spent a lot of time both as a public company director and as a counselor to public companies. How do you see the board aspect of the general counsel's role uh, evolving uh, along with board governance questions? Well, when after WorldCom, Enron, and, and the, the great failures and Sarbanes-Oxley uh, was uh, at play, there was a, a great deal of concern and criticism that lawyers had not properly protected the, the companies. And that even led to a provision, Sarbanes-Oxley, where lawyers had to take it up the chain and take it out. And the ABA created a task force, which I served on, to say, well, how did WorldCom, Enron happen, and, and where were the lawyers, and what are the issues? And out of that, one of the key findings, which frankly I was the advocate for, was to say, look, the general counsel represents the entity. The general counsel does not represent the board. The general counsel does not represent management. It represents the entity. And the general counsel is driven not only by what the law is, but also by their ethical uh, standards set forth in the profession. And, and, and I keep reminding when I speak to lawyers in-house I say, you know, the key question is, are you an employee who happens to be a lawyer or are you a lawyer who happens to be an employee? Because it's a huge distinction. And one of the things that I've always said to myself, and it's not easy, is you've always got to be willing to walk. If you're in a company and you think something's wrong and you're not listened to, you got to leave. Easier said than done, but it's true in my view. So when you deal with the board, my question always is, how many times do you around the CEO or the board 
and the and without the CEO knowing, and the answer is once, because then you'll be fired. But you do have that delegate. You are not management, but yet you need to be with management and, and get along. And then board dynamics are fascinating, and you've seen that, Randy, because uh, people are thrown together and saying you're a board, but so often uh, they, they've never, the time has not been spent to really bond them together, and, and so they're all sort of nervously trying to figure out you know, where where do I come out on this? And that, so the general counsel has this obligation, in my view, rather than the entity, to help steer, and that's the key, very subtly. So there's a silent hand working, uh, and I've seen general counsels, uh, you know, be too obvious of what they were trying to do and, and be asked to leave. So it's it's a client relationship thing, in my view. And the good general counsels do it very well. They work with the person, the CEO, because as you know, the CEO is so dominant in a public company. And hopefully then through the CEO, everything's presented in the right way to the board. Uh, but at the same time, they make sure that, that the board asks the right questions. And it's been so much easier after Sarbanes-Oxley than it was before. I mean, before it, was, it clearly was an imperial CEO. Now you have protocols with independent directors that makes it easier with the with the comp committee and with the various committees, which you you have sort of more of the lawyers say, well, what are the rules? You know, what what do I need to do? So that's one of the great art forms. The real true general counsel that accomplishes a lot can do that very skillfully, but it is challenging. As a public company director yourself, to, how do you approach the general counsels of those companies? Do you sit back? Do you let them approach you? You know, are you always concerned that you don't be seen as a, as a shadow GC? That's a fair question. And, uh, but what I did, and I always had uh, the CEO or chair, you know, coupled with it is, I, before I went to a board meeting, you get all these materials and, you know, and if you got a CFO, CFO that sends you the numbers, I want to know what's behind the numbers. And so I would call the CFO and say, let's just talk about that. So I would do the same with the GC when I saw issues just for an education kind of thing for me, and then try and not always be respectful of the GC, never look like I'm being the lawyer in the room. But frankly, with both boards, public boards I was on, the GC and the CEO or chair were, were pretty differential to say, Bill, would you, you and the GC, you know, just on the hard, tricky, with the real hard, tricky ones, mm-hmm. we'd get together. Let's talk for a second about the direction you see, you know, board governance and corporate governance headed. I know that you are, uh, you work as the chair of the advisory board of the conference board's governance center. And in that role, I know you spend a good deal of time thinking through governance questions for the corporate sector by itself. Uh, You know, we're in an age of activism. We have a presidential candidate suggesting changes to the law to stop short-termism. Where, where do you see these sort of uh, issues headed uh, today? Well, what has happened, and I'm very concerned, market forces have moved that have altered the relationship between boards and shareholders. And it's been without any policy recognition of that there are issues. And uh, it's been more marketplace-driven. And it started right after Sarbanes-Oxley. I mean, corporations lost tremendous, had tremendous loss of trust. And uh, and you can imagine uh, if you were running a mutual fund, whatever, and you say, how the hell, how could you let that happen in on a WorldCom and you didn't even know about it? But so we've had this evolution of way back when, uh, you know, Marty Lippman and Wachtell had, you know, here are all the senses, and that was sort of adopted by all companies, and that was the way to go. 
and and one by one those defenses have been removed and the broker dealer. So today there is a much more opportunity for shareholders sort of directly intervene, and it's still at play. I think the failure of companies to get ahead on executive comp is again a loss of trust, which then leads the pendulum to start swinging. So what what we've been working on the Commerce Board, which we started about five years ago, was why all of a sudden are governance questions having to go to shareholder vote instead of in the old days going to investor relations? And in the old days, well, if you didn't like what you saw, you just you know walk and sell the stock. You can't do that today with index funds. And they all say, no, we're not leaving, so you've got to change. But what, it, what has happened is that money now has gone to hedge funds, and this is, I find, somewhat disturbing, who then come in and make demands and uh, too often, when you study that, and there's a, there's debate on both sides of this, but I think I think the evidence is going to show that the decision the activist funds are pushing so rapidly may pop the stock initially, but five years later, you probably wouldn't have made that. You wouldn't want to make that decision when you look back. And so I I worry about opportunists uh, who come in, pop the stock, they sell, they're gone. And that ties into short-termism, long-termism. And I faced that on the board. One of the boards I was on, we turned down the activists because we wanted to make some investments that would would decrease earnings in the first year. But we really saw that five years out, uh, earnings would be much stronger. But there's no policy on this. And it's just sort of evolving. And I, I find that very troublesome. So I do think, because the other thing that's a key ingredient in this is, this activity is encouraged by shareholder value. It should be the dominant metric on performance of companies, which gets away from stakeholder. And many of us believe that the companies in our, have the social license in our country to operate as public companies under a stakeholder mindset. Yes, shareholders are a key part, but employees are a key part, the public's a key part. And that debate hasn't really, we'll see, I don't know whether it's going to come out of the president's election, but there really it's the it's the long term funds need to sit down with boards and we we need to have a real resolution of this because it's not a healthy situation right now in my view well bill thank you very much for spending time with me today on in house legal it's been hugely informative well randy thank you very much i just think when lawyers talk together it's a good thing because there's no more noble profession and i'm just honored that you let me be a part of this conversation it's been a real pleasure And I want to thank all of you who have listened to our podcast today. For all of you listeners who would like more information about what you've heard today, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com, or you can also follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch, and thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.